director sent this down. Actually, looks like he signed it himself. Oh, and Harker said I'm supposed to collect all your files on Tom Bishop. Finally, you get to use one of these burn bags. Pull this to your otherwise. You didn't see what I put in there. You feeling a little paranoid on our last day? When did Noah build the ark, Levis? Before the rain. Before the rain. Parker said to bring this file. Are you going to buzz me through? No, I can't, sir. I'll make sure he gets it. Is this it? It's all I could find. Packed, misplaced, you know how it is. Moving day and all. It's probably mostly up here anyway. Old school, you know. Muir? Step this way. Sit down here, please. Muir? Wait, you can't go in there. I'll get back to you. can't do this. I'm due at the White House. He's one of ours. Troy, do you remember when we could tell the good guys from the bad guys? All this was about something, wasn't it? Yes. non-smoking facility, sir. Feels good to break a rule now, man. How did Bishop find out where she was? Couldn't have been too hard. Small world, people talk. White face in a Chinese prison stands out. He's well-trained. Should have known he'd find out. <clears throat> Any other questions? Yeah, one. If you'd known he was going after her, would you have told us? No. Who are the others? It is Patricia Lamore, Sandra Harris, and Peggy Dye. All agents of civilian assets. They're all cover wives. Who was he talking to? Thank you. 
been an incident in China. crazier day by day. <laughs> There's a biblical quote, um, something like, near the end, everything accelerates. I think that's how it feels. <laughs> I'm not saying, uh, well, it's some version of the apocalypse, that's for sure. Anyway, um, that those movie quotes at the beginning are Spy Game. Uh, from Spy Game, it was uh, Robert Redford and Brad Pitt, maybe back in the 90s. Uh, just one of my fun, favorite, light, modern films, and I shared three of my favorite quotes there. I'm not sure that um, I really like the... It just seems uh, more and more obvious, the quote about Noah, Noah's Ark. <laughs> seems, seems relevant. But um, the last one about China, I, I'm not sure you'll... If you haven't seen the film... I'm not sure you'll, it'll be very meaningful, but you can get the general gist of what's happening in the picture, and it's a, it's a really fun ride. Anyhow, um, I want to share, I realized that last, uh, last episode I mentioned Podchaser, but I didn't actually review my list on Podchaser, so I'll do that now. They, they let you basically list your top eight favorite podcasts, and I get a lot of uh, meaning. Uh, I mean, if I was forced to listen to mainstream anything, um, I don't know how people do it. But anyway, my top eight on my Podchaser list are, it starts with Dollar Vigilante. So Jeff Berwick is still doing his walk and talks with his Chihuahua Lucy down in Mexico. And I get a lot out of those because Jeff... I mean, Jeff is talking at a very, very macro, global level of the trends that are happening and the signs to pay attention to, and, and he makes it very engaging and entertaining. So I never miss those, almost never. <laughs> he's doing maybe twice a week now, um, but he's got good, good news clips. I just feel like it's a good sense of what's really happening out there. Um, and he wrote a book. He, I guess he probably had a, I think... I don't know if you call it co-written. He had a, he had a supporting author anyway, but um, on the controlled demolition of the American Empire, the financial meltdown basically, and so he's so far ahead of the game in terms of what they've been predicting and the team he put together to help provide advice through all this. Um, it's just like speaking of of uh, building the ark before the rain, those guys were like 10 years ahead of everybody in getting prepared and set up a business helping other people get prepared. 
So I just, I can't say enough about how helpful that is. Uh, Nick Bryant podcast is on my list and I, I his is another one I, I'm, I never miss. Um, he's got one right now on the occult. Uh, I think it's two or three part series. I just uh, started it yesterday, but, um, I'm, I'm very happy with the path he's taking. He, he does, his guests aren't always bang on. I think maybe he, he might, you know, he's dabbling in a very dark space and at the same time he's trying to stay very, very mainstream credible. Uh, so he doesn't want to go too conspiratorial. Um, but that probably limits him a little bit on some of the topics uh, in terms of the rabbit holes he can go down. But at the same time, it's a really nice overview of the entire space. So I'm, I'm enjoying uh, Nick Bryant's. And they're usually less than 45 minutes. Uh, Culture Wars, Never Miss, E. Michael Jones. Um, and that's the focus of the podcast today. So I'll set up his latest and kind of where his focus has been uh, in a moment. Uh, Patrick Coffin, another really good one. Um, great guests. I, I don't miss his often either. I like his space. Ever since he did the um, Truth Over Fear um, special um, conference, back that probably was in 2020 that he did that um, with an unbelievable lineup of guests. So he was a guy that was able to see through a lot. I think he's in California, and I think it took him, until he actually took a plane, took a flight, I don't think he fully realized how invasive the uh, corona mandates and everything were. But, but to his credit, he adjusted and calibrated, recalibrated and has been really bang on ever since. Uh, Del Bigtree, I rarely miss. I, I he he has a weekly show. Um, his his ratings are way beyond CNN now, and he's had an unbelievable lineup of guests. And his uh, I'd say his right hand guy is Jeffrey Jackson, who does a deep dive, kind of like a news almost um, segment. Uh, between the two of them, they they're now broadening the scope because beyond uh, vaccinations to more the political scope and kind of some of the global organizations and some of the global experts. But he has an unbelievable platform, and he's a good interviewer. He's a producer by profession, but um, I would say in terms of audience and scope, I would say his, is, his has got to be the biggest truth show out there. Um, Robert Kennedy Jr., I also never miss his. He keeps them very short, always like less than 40 minutes, um, and excellent guests. Um, this week, he had a really good... Oh, Alex Berenson, who is a guy I follow. I, I follow his email feed, but I couldn't remember why I was following him. But but um, they're just basically two truthers. Alex Berenson's been censored all over the place, but it's a it's a great discussion. But... I'd say once or twice a week, RFK Jr. has a great 30 to 40 minute podcast with an excellent guest. Um, James Corbett, I, his is more, to me, the work he did was more groundwork. So he's much less likely to be um, tied to events per se. Or if he does, he goes into such a deep dive, it's more like 
the historical context. But anyway, he's he's consistently good. And then Maverick Moncast, Ma, Ma, Maverick Mindcast is my eighth pick, and uh, she's great. She did a three-part series on crypto, which um, her guest was really really good. She's she has a hard time seeing. Uh, I understand. I mean, crypto's still evolving, so I can understand people that kind of dabble in it and find it very frustrating and confusing. Um, but uh, she has. She's. I don't know how you would characterize. She's definitely done um, alternative viewpoints on news and history, and has great guests and does deep dives into rabbit holes. Uh, crypto wasn't a rabbit hole per se, but she was trying to educate her audience while she was educating herself, and it was good. It was really good. Anyway, she's consistently consistently good. Um, Last American Vagabond, I don't listen to as much anymore. When I do, I'm very happy. He's unbelievably consistent and thorough. Um, I just haven't been able to keep up, I guess you could say. Um, but I'm never disappointed when I do tune in. I find him great when he has guests, actually. Um, and let me just take one last glance here, if there's anything else. Oh, Dave Rubin is probably the most mainstream podcaster that I will tune into because I do like to know what they're saying in the mainstream. Um, I wouldn't. I mean, he's not mainstream media exactly, but he really, really stays fairly mainstream. Like he went on Bill Maher this week, for example. Uh, so I enjoy just staying, he's got a really good head on his shoulders. He's in Florida now. He really loves uh, DeSantis and everything he's doing. So I like to just keep up with Dave when I can. Um, that's probably a good list of the podcast sources. Um, let me jump over to the podcast page and the links that I've provided and the topics I've been focused on in the last couple of weeks. I lost touch with Reiner Fulmick. Reiner Fulmick was doing like a grand jury. He, very impressive guy. Um, he 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 kind of made a name for himself, I think, with the Volkswagen uh, uh, case back probably what was that, fifteen years ago now. But um, I but I can't remember what his expertise is, but he's a PhD. He's a German lawyer, um, but he's also licensed in California, I believe, or in U.S., and uh, and definitely seems to have strength in constitutional law as well, from what I can tell. But he, um, his wife, they were in some kind of a vacation home in California when Corona break broke, and they were just kind of watching it all happen. And his wife just urged him, you've got to do something about this. <laughs> we can't just watch this go down. So, and I mean, he, he's extremely wired for justice, which is fantastic. So what basically happened, his father, he gets into a little bit of his father in a recent podcast, but his father was a, a cop and got, and got quite um, disenchanted with the legal system Um and Reiner decided to be a lawyer to to fight for justice, um, and so his his motives are outstanding. Anyway, so he got a peer together, and they decided what could they do. They took hearings. They basically took uh, depositions 
of experts. Uh, I think they have over 400 now uh, the, to build up the case of the fraud of Corona. And it's extremely well done. But only recently, I think it's maybe within the last four weeks, he had some kind of a falling out on his team. Um, like basically who was his co-pilot. They've had some kind of a falling out. And he said she's suffering from serious mental issues. Uh, so now he's broken off onto his own team or rebuilt a, a new team. And he's got control of his Telegram channel. And his new team is called the International Crimes Investigative Committee. And uh, so they're, they're putting together all of the hearings so the, in a knowledge base that anybody can go and use. And, um, and they're basically doing like grand jury uh, testimony now. So his greatest hope, he's got two greatest hopes. One is um, divine intervention because things are such a mess. <laughs> which respect that I, I'm hearing that more and more often um, but the other one is he likes the Western legal system I think he really means the American system uh, for class actions and he's in very good contact with a number of teams that are uh, initiating class actions on a number of the cases like um, Remdesivir for example Anthony Fauci um, like there's a whole number of them where they're getting together uh, and he, that's where he thinks the most traction is going to happen. But um, I shared three or four recent links. He's completely on top of it. He's one of the most credible experts on the facts and evidence of the story. And uh, I really like the way he, he puts it, actually. Um, very, very strong uh, advocate for, for course correcting here. Um, the next link I have was Julian Assange's wife did a recent podcast with Jordan Peterson that I would I didn't even I didn't know anything of that Julian Assange has gotten married while he's been I think in the Ecuador embassy but uh, in UK but um, and they've had two kids together and she is outstanding his wife her name is Stella Assange she was she's a reporter and a lawyer and it's around a two-hour conversation with Jordan Peterson. Um, I just, I'm so embarrassed by how that Assange case has evolved during our lifetime that it's just a complete embarrassment, the lack of justice happening there and the persecution and how much, how much the world has turned their back on a guy who basically became the first internet savvy investigative journalist like that's basically and he created wikileaks and uh and became the greatest whistleblower of all time and then he got persecuted on many many fronts and what he's been put through is unbelievable anyway that that conversation was a really good catch-up on things he's been accused of and how much how the the games they've been playing with him and how he's been I, I I really hope she gets a chance to get on Del Big Tree's High Wire episode as well because that audience is probably even bigger and better. Uh, although Jordan Peterson's audience is probably quite huge, but I think in terms of whistleblowers, the audience is probably a better match. But anyway, um, that was definitely worth the time ca catching up on that case and uh, and hearing how together she is. Um, Let's see, the other links I've shared here, one is Mexican Senator um, announced 
this week, I think, that Bitcoin is going to be a legal tender down there, which I, I'm, I'm new to crypto since Corona happened, like since 2020, but I have a lot of hope. For example, I used it this week. A friend of mine was shipping a package from Mexico, and in less than 20 minutes, I was able to wire her the fee for the shipping um, seamlessly and painlessly. <laughs> and uh, compared to any kind of anything else, uh, oh, and privately, we did it privately as well. So compared to like PayPal and credit cards and banks and oh my God, the nightmare that is out that has been out there. Crypto to me is here to stay. It's just a matter of stabilizing the standards, in my opinion. Uh, anyway, so then let's see. Uh, yeah, there was a really, really nice uh, representative from Kentucky. I think he was a Republican representative from Kentucky slamming the Amtrak CEO for their policies. Like, it's uh, America. It's really embarrassing <laughs> uh, on some of these fronts. Like, some of these mandates that are still out there that uh, people can't come to the country without being vaccinated still, despite how much evidence is out there um, for the toxic poison that it is. And... Uh, I thought this representative from Kentucky really slammed that Amtrak CEO because they're, the Amtrak CEO is still making new hires get vaccinated, even though with all the proof that's out there. Anyway, um, Peggy at the Healthy American, to me, she is the best example of just a normal person out there that, with outrage in Orange County. And um, she's like a soccer mom type personality. And what she's done is amazing. Uh, she went to the uh, Orange County Council uh, every two weeks for probably more than a year and eventually decided she had to sue them, and that's what she's doing now. And she's had a few breakthroughs. The, 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 there are many, many justices in the U.S. that still, if they get the case in front of them in the right, in the right forum, um, they still believe in justice, which is fantastic, and that's what I think she's experiencing now. Uh, I don't need to go through every single link that's here. Um, there's some good summaries of some good cases that are encouraging. Um, let's see. Plandemic 3. Uh, that's, um, I think his name is Mickey Willis. He's a film producer. He's a guy that, I think he moved from California to Austin as well. He works, or they're contemporaries, uh, Dell, Big Tree, and Mickey Willis, but He's done two, two documentaries on the pandemic. This is the third one, and I'm really looking forward to it. I don't think it's fully released, but it's got to be very soon, uh, and it looks, it looks fantastic. I mean, there's just such a story to tell, and people that are busy paying their bills and doing their jobs and feeding their kids, you know, they're just not able to see the full picture until you get it put together this way. So I'm, I'm very encouraged by that. Um, Let's see, last couple links here. Well, the one I, I did a bit of a deep dive on this myself. It was called Five Psychological Experiments That Explain the Modern World. And there are a few uh, films in, in that article that I followed up as well. But it, it kind of supports the Matthias Desmet view of things. And basically, that there's, um, there's proven experiments how... People respond to authority and um, what people are willing to do uh, under the when they feel like the crowd is going 
in the same direction as the authority. Like it just kind of explains some of the mindless choices people have made. So I found that quite insightful, that article. Um, and I think finally, oh, there is another Jordan Peterson podcast I shared here. Um, Jonathan Pajot's brother, Matthew. Jonathan Pajot is a, like a wood carver. He does, he does, he's an artist and he does art for churches. He's a Christian. He's not Catholic. I can't remember exactly which denomination, but, um, Jonathan Pajot is really great about symbolism and seeing symbolism and trying to explain symbolic imagery and thinking. He's, he's really good. But anyway, his brother is different. <laughs> his brother is much more systems-minded, like an engineer. And uh, his brother has published, self-published his own ebook around um, biblical stories and how they can be summarized into a few lessons that patterns, I guess you would say patterns of lessons. Um, I only listened to the podcast. I haven't seen his book yet, but I found it very, very powerful. Some half a dozen patterns that they walked through and explained and discussed. I think he's on to something there. So I, I, that, that link is here as well. Um, Michael Jones, he's, maybe twice a week still, um, podcast appearances. Some, this one, the one I'm sharing here today is, is actually a guest on his show um, from Argentina, but he was outstanding, his, his Spanish guest here. But um, uh, over and over, he's getting more and more concise and hard-hitting with his insight. I think I've said before, he's got the best decoder ring to me for the millennium. Uh, the way he has mapped, I'll explain a little bit about Michael Jones and how he's kind of found <laughs> found his path. Because when I get well into my seventies, I would I would like to have his uh, body of work. But um, what basically happened was he was a professor, and I don't remember exactly this. He's half uh, Irish and half German, and he speaks German. Um, I think his mother taught them German, and he taught uh, university in the 70s in Germany. So he has a lot, of, he has three or four years experience there, not to mention knowing the language and the culture. Um, but in, like it was kind of probably his final move to make a tenure track professor at a Notre Dame Catholic college in South Bend, Indiana. And he and his wife moved there probably 30, 35 years ago now. And, you know, he's, he's on, on the track he should be on. You know, he's in, he's in a Notre Dame college, St. Mary's, I think it's called. And, um, and in his first year, he runs right into modernism and feminism happening in his faculty. And uh, he basically gets sacked for being against abortion at a Catholic college if you can believe that. He couldn't believe it. He couldn't understand what he just stepped into, basically. And so his life plan was reset. <laughs> and I can't remember exactly. I think he started doing, somebody in the diocese, in the Catholic diocese, asked him to do a deep research. I think it was in Philadelphia um, diocese. And uh, and that's how when he started doing research and writing, and he launched his own um, 
uh, online magazine called, well, it's now called Culture Wars. I think it used to be called Fidelity. But um, basically, he, he built, his, he took, he's a liter, literature prof, and he took his literary uh, acumen and he put it into research and, and started producing, writing and publishing books and writing and publishing his online newsletter. Um, and so that's basically what got him there. And the reason I'm giving you all this background is because uh, he explains in this clip, I think it's 15 minutes, so I'm going to get to it quickly here. But um, he explains the last three books and how they make sense, essentially. But somehow I can't remember how he got pulled into the Jewish question. I'm sure it was the book before that he stumbled into that. But he did a deep dive on what you would call the Jewish question. And he published, it's now three volumes, um, Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, which became, and he explains in this clip, the history of anti-Logos. So it's a very important, <laughs> this, is, this is why I think he's got the decoder ring of the millennium. It's very important to understand that Yes, the Hebrews had a had a history before the crucifix and the Messiah. The Messiah was their Messiah. I mean, according to Scripture, and uh, but but there was a large group of them, the Hebrews, that thought they were going to get another David. You know, King David, the, um, a ruler, a strong, mighty. You know, they were hoping to fight and take over that way with might. <laughs> they didn't. They weren't expecting the Messiah they got. Um, and so there's a group that basically started at the crucifix that, you know, the ones that cried out, crucify him. And so there's, you know, it's split at that point. There's the ones that decided to become Christian and get behind the Christian teachings. And then there's the ones that, that cheered for freeing Barabbas instead. So the revolutionary and you know, cheered to have him crucified, have the Romans crucify him. And really that's, and so that's the history of anti-Logos. That's the beginning. Uh, the Messiah was, you know, is considered the Logos incarnate. So he's, he's the word made flesh. And, uh, and they were against that. And so that's where the history of anti-Logos begins at the crucifix. And so you've got this history from that day forward till now, of this battle of Logos versus Anti-Logos. So his three-volume set of Jewish revolutionary spirit is the history of Anti-Logos that I have um, begun here. Uh, the next one, which I read in, I started reading in 2020 and finished in 2021, I think, um, is uh, Logos Rising, um, which is, he decided, you know, he, he had done that story, <laughs> and then he shifted, and he explains in this, in this clip that what he wanted to, he wanted something universal that he could talk to these other cultures like Iran and India, uh, Muslims, uh, that he could bridge the gap without getting into arguments about dogma and, you know, uh, philosophical, I mean, faith-based beliefs and these kinds of things. He wanted, what, what's the lingua franca? What's the common language between us? And he concluded it's logos, reason. And, uh, and that's really why he did Logos Rising, which is the history of Logos. Um, and, you know, much more positive than the history of anti-Logos. <laughs> but, um, and that, 
and that's really, you know, and the the cover, the picture I took here for the Time magazine, um, I mean, that was me at the beginning in 2020 trying to explain to people uh, all of the rabbit holes that are coming together to be proven during Corona. Well, it just, I've never, I personally have never had much luck. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm even so good at, at using Logos, but it is the right Everybody wants, not everybody, but most people want to believe that they are reasonable and that they're based in fact and reason. And so the idea of bridging to people that maybe aren't, that are maybe atheistic or scientistic or modernistic or what have you, um, using logos and reason makes sense. I can't say I'm good at it yet, but it makes complete sense. Well, I in this clip um, that I share here, he explains why he did the next book which is the um, which is about basically the history of aesthetics and beauty and natural beauty and he takes oh, I've ordered the book I don't have it in my hands yet but it, he takes like poetry uh, music art architecture all of these things and explains um, the transcendent value of these artistic forms creative artistic forms and um and so he's he went from logos using reason to bridge the gap to to using aesthetics which makes even more sense um so we all have our own creative spark and this is what john rapaport is constantly advocating that we all have our own creative gifts Maybe you're a mechanical engineer, maybe you write software code, maybe you're a poet, maybe you're an artist, maybe you're a musician, what have you. Um, and this Dangers of Beauty, his book is called The Dangers of Beauty, so he, he looks at both sides, how it can be distracting and taking you off track and how it can be transcendent. transcendent. And there are three transcendents, that's in the, in the title here, truth, beauty, and goodness. And so the book is basically trying to uh, explain how the transcendence can bridge the gaps. So I, this is what I'm trying to get to, but he, you know, he explains it much more. So I'll, I'll, I'll drop off here in a second. But I'm seeing all around us that there are massive gaps. I'm sure in families, even parents and kids, there are massive gaps. And what what kids have witnessed and lived the last couple of years? I mean, it's just incredible. So the question is, you know, how can you bridge those gaps? Or you go into, I went into a Cracker Barrel. This is maybe a couple months ago. This is around Memorial Day weekend. And it's a nice city. I was in a nice city. And, it, and it, I could see the staff were despondent. I mean, I could, you could just see that they didn't see, they couldn't see any meaning in this life. That's how it seemed. I mean, they were just like drones. Um, I really felt for them. And normally, I don't find that <laughs> at, at a Cracker Barrel. I think they're generally very well managed, but these people were just dead inside. And um, and I think that's what's happening with a lot of youth. So who knows what's happening? Maybe they've got maybe they've got a broken home, you know, and they're discouraged there at school. It's a mess, political mess. Um, they can see all the distractions, and they've got friends, you know, having trouble with drugs and whatever else. And they're trying to make their way, and they just can't see their path. Um, I just think that this idea of bridging the gap. 
So there is, you know, this this loose flotilla of disorganized truthers and freedom fighters. We, I like to count myself among that, we are inspired. Our cup is filling because we can see it all, the truth of everything coming clear. And as, as chaotic as it seems and discouraging at sometimes, underneath that it's encouraging because there's, eyes are opening and scales are dropping. And so people that are seeing it that way, maybe it's 5%, maybe I think Desmet, Matthias Desmet says 3 to 5%. Um, I think that Dr. Jones has something here of how those people who their hearts are filling because they can see the goodness coming, essentially, how they can br bridge the gap to these young people who haven't had a chance yet. And it's really through creative inspiration that you can, and a, you know, whatever your inspiration is, can bridge the gap to these people. Um, that's really the encouraging part that I wanted to share. I Trust me, he explains it much better. So he'll, he'll tell his whole story here in a second. Um, I'm just happy to get back. Um, and I look forward to reconnecting soon. So thanks everybody and uh, enjoy. Google, and as painful as it is, Logos is definitely rising. It fails. The pump broker? No, no, that was, we're talking about 64. 64. They tried it, Tisfog, uh, the silence, nobody knew about it. It had no traction whatsoever. There was a farce, sex farce called Kiss Me Stupid with Dean Martin and Kim Novak. That failed. Next year, they roll out the big guns, and that's the pawnbroker. This is the Holocaust now. And that's the sacred narrative. And the Catholic Church simply rolls over and plays dead. They abandon their own legion of decency. It collapses because you, because of what happened at the council. The Holocaust is now Catholic dogma. And so as a result, collapse on both sides of the Atlantic, both in the United States and Germany. Sexual revolution sweeps through, and once you have sexual revolution in the media, the Jews take over discourse. And that led to the Jewish takeover of our foreign policy, which led to the Ukraine, and that's where we are today. Right. Well, very uh, interesting. We can. It, it helps a lot to understand what's going on now. Uh, we will continue to discuss this, and I'm sure you will continue to write in culture wars about these topics. So, since we do not have much time, we can discuss a little bit uh, about uh, Logos Rising, which we call La Epifania del Logos in Spanish, and then about uh, the dangers of beauty, Right, your wonderful, marvelous last book. Right. So, uh, concerning... Well, in, in Logos Rising, you somehow mm, prove the need to restore a metaphysical restoration of Logos to politics in general, right? Right, right. Um, can you refer to that? What are the consequences yeah. Yeah. we are living in now? There is ne you, you will always have a medica metaphysical foundation to 
the empire to any political. You can't, a, a regime cannot exist without a metaphysical foundation. Now, you can have a good metaphysical foundation or you can have a bad. There's only one real metaphysical foundation, and that is the one that Aquinas appropriated from Aristotle. And that's basically the uncaused cause and the unmoved mover. And that establishes a certainty. And this is what precisely happened in the Catholic Church over the course of the 19th century. You had a, a return of Thomism after centuries of what no one knew what it was. Uh, in 1871, I believe it was uh, Pope Leo XIII issued an encyclical called Eterni Patris, which said that Thomism is the official philosophy of the Catholic Church. Right. This first took root in France, big Thomist revival in France. Two of the main uh, pillars of it were Etienne Gilson and Jacques Maritain. Mm -hmm. After the war, both of those men came to North America. It was, Maritain said it was like the fall of Constantinople, where you had to take the books, uh, all the books to move them to Western Europe. Well, now we're moving them from Europe, which has failed because of the war, to America, which is the new hope, the new hegemon. Mm -hmm. And uh, it came specifically to Notre Dame University. 1953, Notre Dame University implements uh, Eterni Patris. We are, every student has to learn Thomism. So, two questions. On the one hand, why did you write Logos Rising, and uh, how do, uh, does this book relate to your previous books, uh, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit and Libidius Dominandi? And we can also mention Baron Metal. Yes. Okay, so I wrote The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. I had to, there was one word I had to use in this book, and it was Logos, because I had to define the Jew. What is a Jew? They're, you're never going to learn this from asking a Jew because they change the definition depending on. So sometimes it's a religion, sometimes it's an ethnic group. I'm saying it's really uh, the Jewish identity came at the time of Christ when they crucified Christ. Christ is the Logos incarnate. When you reject Logos, you reject the order of the universe. When you reject the order of the universe, you, re you become a revolutionary, and that's been their identity all the way to the present for 2,000 years. And uh, the Jewish revolutionary spirit is the history of anti-Logos. So when I wrote this, I thought, I'll do the opposite now. I'll do the history of Logos. And that's uh, largely because I've been traveling all over the world. So I was in Iran. And how do you speak to people from a completely different culture, an ancient culture like Iran. I go to India, same thing. It's an even more ancient culture than, than Persia. More complex. More complex. How do you talk to people? So I was on the internet and I said to uh, uh, a guy from India, I said, there's no Logos in India and he's upset. Uh, what do you mean by that? It's kind of like insulting for me to say that. And I said, well, look at the, the Jewish cosmology. Uh, the Jewish, the Indian. Indian cosmology. The earth is a semicircle it's sitting on four elephants that's on a turtle. I said, what's the turtle standing on? He couldn't answer that question, and as a result, he became a Catholic. This is the, 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 the goal of Logos Rising. We have a duty to promote Logos. It's not an option. I mean, faith is given to us by grace, but metaphysics is a duty. You have a duty to be rational, no matter where you are in the world. And so this was an attempt to 
start that dialogue with every, basically everyone in the world. And uh, our dignity and, uh, and, and our survival depends on, on that restoration of Logos. And that's the, the only one that affords us the possibility of establishing a true dialogue. A true universality, because we are all uh, rational creatures. That is a universal phenomenon, and we simply have to address it that way. In, in what way, uh, some commentators have said that Logos Rising, your book, uh, marks the end of ahistorical Thomism. Yes, that's the, problem with, that's the problem with Thomism. This is the Achilles heel. It's based on Aristotle. It is true in terms of metaphysics, but Aristotle did not know that the world was created. No Greek knew that. That was revelation from the Jews, from the Hebrews. Uh, and because he didn't know that the world was created, he couldn't explain time. So the change took place with Aquinas, wrote a little book called De Eterne, De Eterne Mundi Contra Murmurantes, the eternity of the world, and the eternity of the world against the murmurers. And he said, very subtle mind, he said, even if the world were eternal, it had to come into being. Now that's subtle, because most people confuse time and causality, and Aquinas was subtle enough. And he says, because this world couldn't, could not create itself because to do that, it would have to exist before it existed, and that's impossible. So this is uh, a new development, and Aquinas really never, he, he, didn't, he died when he was 49 years old. Very young. So he never had the chance to implement that understanding of history, to integrate the understanding of history that is intrinsic to Christianity into an ahistorical Aristotelian metaphysics. Right. Didn't do it. Mm -hmm. And the problem was that the Thomist revival didn't do it either. And so as a result, you had this ahistorical Thomism. In the last chapter of Logos Rising, you give us a good lesson, uh, we could say, in historical methodology, because uh, the chapter is called Annus Mirabilis 1979. And you, you connect all the historical dots to prove what had happened in that miraculous or wonderful year or decade. Right. Uh, it's part of your own method, too, that people think, well, it's, we, I like to, to read Dr. Jones because he, he connects all the, the dots of history. Can you tell us a little bit about... Yeah, so Feb what we had is an uprising against materialism mm -hmm. in 1979, a spontaneous mm -hmm. uprising that could not have been coordinated by the people who did it. So the first thing in February of 1979, the Ayatollah Khomeini returns to Iran, the Shah is overthrown, and they institute uh, an Islamic Republic. So it's a religious reaction against materialism. Six months later, no, no, four months later, four months later, Pope John Paul II goes to Warsaw and says mass at an officially communist, atheistic country. And it awakens the religious consciousness of the Polish people. And at that point, it begins, the, what we're seeing is the beginning of the downfall of communism, uh, which is the Eastern materialism. So the Shah, uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini is reacting against America, which is Western materialism. 
consumer materialism. This is atheistic uh, materialism in the Soviet Union. That could not have been coordinated. That was not coordinated by these two men. They, the Pope wrote to, after the hostage crisis, the Pope wrote to the Ayatollah Khomeini and asked them to release the hostages. And the Ayatollah Khomeini just replied with a, a, a rude kind of contemptuous reply and basically called him a lackey of the American empire. So they didn't like each other. They didn't coordinate, but there was a bigger plan. I'm saying this is God's plan because it's the only way you can explain this simultaneous rejection of those of uh, materialism. And the nature of that uh, rejection and revolt was religious. Right. It was a religious uprising. Not an uh, econo in economic or capitalistic uh, No. Uh, no, it thing. wasn't capitalism versus communism. It was religion against both capitalism and communism. Mm -hmm. That was the moment, movement of Logos in human history. And I'm saying that's what we have to understand, that God's in charge of human history. And we are kind of, we have to collaborate with God, uh, but the plan will go forward whether evil men collaborate or not, because if evil men could thwart God's plan, it would have been over a long time ago. Your thesis, uh, which is entirely Catholic, of course, and classical, uh, reinvigorates hope because it uh, helps us remember that uh, divine providence is always present present uh, and uh, there is rationality in history and and we can expect developments to 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 lead to a, a certain meaningful worthy end right right, right. so this is there are three transcendentals, the good, the true, and the beautiful. Mm -hmm. And philosophy is how you achieve the truth. And, but there's another transcendental, and it's beauty. And so this book, the, the uh, Logos Rising, led to this book called The, uh, the Dangers of Beauty. This mm -hmm. is a transcendental. And the premise here is this, they're both going to the same goal. But you're, this book shows that at certain periods in history, the artist can portray what the philosopher cannot explain. And right. that's the story of the rise of Logos in the arts. And how, how, how important that is. So, in what way does art promote Moral, the moral and social order. Well, these, they're, inter they're interchangeable. So the good and the true and the beautiful are all interchangeable. So Keats said, truth is beauty and beauty truth. That's the poet. He didn't understand it, but he said it. Because the poet can say oftentimes what he doesn't really understand. And so the, the crucial turning point came in Italy. Now, this is a, the, the Greeks were the cutting edge of Logos in human history all the way up to the Council of Nicaea, when you had a discussion about the Trinity, it had to take you had to speak Greek in order to be part of that discussion. The Latin fathers were excluded. Over this period of time, something happened to the Greek world. It became ossified uh, because it, it the and so Vasari, when he's talking about the development of painting, he talked about Giotto, and he said Giotto had to break with Greek models. The Greek model was the icon. You would never have a dynamic painting like this in the Greek-speaking world, in the right. Orthodox world, because 
You had to break with the icon. This is heavy, dude. This is serious psychological drama here uh, in art. And so Giotto and Aquinas are almost contemporaries. Giotto is a little bit younger than Aquinas. But Giotto articulated the principle that Aquinas said. Now, before it's Platonism, that is the regnant aesthetic ideology, it's the regnant philosophy. Nobody knew about Aquinas except the Arabs, the, I mean, the, is the Muslims. So at this point, Aquinas... Aristotle, you mean? Nobody knew about Aristotle mm -hmm. except the Muslims. Right. And Aquinas got it through uh, Islam, through Averroes. So at this point, you finally have someone who is taking the notion of creation seriously. If God created the world, God is an artist. Indeed. And that means the world is a work of art. Indeed. And that means if you study the world as it exists, you will enter into the mind of God to some extent. Now, this is also the time of the birth of science, which was uh, Albert the Great, Thomas Aquinas' mentor, created science at the time. But the artist did it by breaking with the Greek model and looking at the world. So... This, there's the world. It's back there. It's not simply a gold background. The world is, this is the real world, and these are real people. And that, you have a breakthrough in mimesis. Mimesis is imitation of nature. That's all art is. It's all it will ever be. But at this point, you had a new understanding of nature. It wasn't, the world wasn't eternal. It was created. It was a work of art. There is a logos in nature. Plato didn't know that. Nature was the world. There was the world of forms. There was the world that we live in. This is total chaos. It's total flux. The only way you can have art is to impose forms on inchoate nature. And the classic example of that is the temple, which is basically geometric forms right. imposed on nature. This led, this is the latest issue of Culture Wars. This is uh, my wife and me uh, in. California, Carmel, California, a man who never, I guarantee you, Charles Green, the architect, never read Aquinas. He was a Protestant, he was an American, didn't know who he was. But the idea that you could understand Logos, approach Logos through beauty, is something he understood, and that's what he did with his house. There are pictures in there of, of the house itself. Excellent. Next time we talk, I will have read uh, The Dangers of Beauty, and uh, on behalf of uh, our friends, I will be able to ask some more questions about the dangers of beauty. In the meantime, I will take it to Argentina, and hopefully and luckily, uh, we will be able to translate it into Spanish. Great. So I uh, thank you very much, and we always look forward to having you in Argentina again. Thank you. Thank you, Luis, and thank you for translating these books into Spanish. Most welcome. Thank you.